0: Hello everyone, wherever you're listening from around the world. Thank you for joining the When in Spain podcast. My name's Paul Burge. I'm your host for the When in Spain show. Thank you for joining me. So to start off with, I've got a little quiz for you. What do the Spanish words hasta, loco, barrio, aceite, moreno, ojalá, chaleco, tarea, fideo all have in common. What do those words all have in common? Any guesses? Well, I guess you probably already have a clue by the title of this podcast episode. Yeah, that's right. They're all Arabic origin words um, that have been absorbed into the Spanish language. Arabic loan words, if you like. Yeah, all super common words. Uh, Asta, which means until. So we use that all the time. Hasta luego, hasta pronto, hasta mañana. Loco, crazy or mad. Barrio, neighbourhood. Aceite, oil or olive oil, if you like. Moreno which means to be kind of dark-complexioned, or dark-skinned, or maybe tanned, if you like. Ojalá, super common word, which means hopefully, and comes from the Arabic, God willing. Chaleco, uh, which means vest. Tarea, which means a task or a chore. Fideo, noodles. So as you can see, just this small selection of words are really, really common everyday words in Spanish. And there are a lot more modern Spanish words that uh, derive from Arabic than you might think. Certainly a lot more than I thought. I used to think that it was just words beginning with AL that came from Arabic. Well, really, mostly place names. Uh, for example, Alcalá, Almería, Albacete, Alpujarras, Albuquerque, all place names which begin with the prefix Guad. For example, uh, Guadalajara, Guadalquivir, Guadalete, Guadarrama. So, al being the definite article in Arabic, the, and guad meaning, uh, well, river water or or valley, really. But no, in fact, I was wrong. There are many, many everyday words that we use uh, when we're speaking Spanish, when we're chatting in Spanish, which are basically Arabic words, really. So whether you're fluent in Spanish or whether you're learning Spanish, without doubt, Tripping off your tongue without really realizing you're going to be speaking a little splash of Arabic as well, really. Um, And for me, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this week's episode the influence of Arabic on modern Spanish language. To help me explore this theme, I'm going to be talking to David Bowles, who's a linguist, writer and university professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley
1: albondiga and i and i love albondigas
0: me too so for the listeners who maybe not sure they're like uh, little meatballs
1: yeah like little meatballs right it comes from the word for hazelnut and um, some uh, arabic speakers who follow me have pointed out that in modern arabic this word um, albunduka, can now just mean any round thing
0: David's going to be explaining how Arabic percolated across the Iberian Peninsula and how the Arabic and Mozarabic gave way to a lot of modern Spanish words that we still use today, 500 years later. He's also going to walk us through a bit of the history of the Moorish presence on the Iberian Peninsula. As I'm sure you probably know, uh, it's well documented in Spanish history that the Moors uh, were present in Iberia for around 700 years. David's also going to look at some of his favourite Arabic loanwords and describes their evolution or transformation, if you like. And we also look at some other curiosities of the Spanish language. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up in a minute. But first of all, I'd like to give a shout out and a big thank you to new Win in Spain patrons, uh, Joan Novak, Christopher Tipper, uh, Theo Lario and Julie Perron. I hope I've pronounced your names uh, correctly. Uh, Big thanks to Joan, Christopher, Theo, and Julie for becoming When in Spain patrons and uh, signing up to make a small, regular pledge on the uh, crowdfunding website, uh, patreon.com. Thank you for pledging uh, a couple of dollars a month to help support uh, the costs of putting the show together, on that note, if anyone else enjoys the When in Spain podcast, if you've been listening for a long time and you've been thinking about making a donation and you're not sure how to do it, it's really, really super easy. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash when in Spain. And for those of you who do become When in Spain patrons, I've set up a special When in Spain patron group on Facebook where I'll be sharing bonus content, video and other things like that. So getting back to Spanish and uh, Arabic, well, Spanish has, would you believe, 1,000 Arabic roots and around 3,000 derived words. So really a total of 4,000 words. That's 8% of the language coming from Arabic. And Arabic has the largest influence on the Spanish lexicon, obviously not including Latin. So here to explain more about this, let's get into the interview. And here is me talking to David Bowles. David, thank you so much for joining the When in Spain podcast show today.
1: I'm happy to, Paul. Thank you for inviting
0: me. I discovered really you, Vira very interesting for me anyway, and I hope for the When In Spain listeners too, Twitter thread where you were talking about the effect of Arabic on Spanish. And we'll get into a bit more detail about that a bit later in the podcast. You were listing several Spanish words, vocabulary, which were directly influenced from Arabic. Let's kind of set the scene. I mean, most people will know that... There was a a Muslim Moorish rule of the Iberian Peninsula for around 700 years between 711 and about 1492. That's, That's incredibly well documented. And of course, the presence of the Moors on the Iberian Peninsula had uh, a vast influence, not just on language, but, uh, but it did indeed have uh, a significant uh, influence on Spanish at that time, and uh, which still persists in modern Spanish today. How would have the influence of Arabic percolated through the Iberian Peninsula?
1: Yeah, so that's a great place to start. Uh, I think it's important to to note that when the Mayad Arabic uh, rulers first came in with their Berber troops and pushed the Visigoths out of Spain, there was a a period of a couple hundred years in which, though a great chunk of Iberia was governed by this Arabic elite and their Berber, you know, like henchmen (laughs) who brought (laughs) their families and so forth with them, Al Andalus, as it was called at the time, the you know uh, Muslim Spain was still primarily populated by Christians of Hispano-Roman um, ethnicity or, or background. Uh-huh. Um, and it wasn't really until um, the the height of the Umayyad um, rule in about 1100 that we got to the point that Al-Andalus was probably 80% Muslim. And the vast majority of that 80% were Mualadun, the converts, who, whose perhaps ancestors or perhaps they themselves were Christian up to a point and yeah. then converted to Islam so that you have, you know, in, in the 10th century, about 6 million uh, Muslims living in Al-Andalus um, and speaking Arabic. Andalusi Arabic, of course, a dialect of Arabic that had kind of developed over the previous couple of centuries, and Andalusi uh, Romance, which is you know, this kind of precursor to, um, to Spanish, or something that I guess more properly evolved alongside Castilian, which was evolving to the north um, along with Galician and and Portuguese and, and other um, oh, and- r- Romance languages. And so, in Andalusi Romance, you had A huge number of Arabic terms, as you can imagine, the same sort of thing that was happening at the same time in England under the Norman French, where um, so many Anglo-Saxon words had been kind of stripped out of the language because of this ruling class of French speakers. And then, you know, thousands of French words were adopted into langu- into the English language, completely transforming it. Something yeah. like that was happening, not, not quite to the same extent, but with Andalusian Romance. And as those Mozarabic people, um, Mozarabes, some of them immigrated to Christian kingdoms to the north, they brought with them into those cultures their particular brand of Romance, and a lot of those words began to, to be... Uh, adapted in adopted by those um, languages. and and of course, as then the Christian kingdoms you know Asturias and then eventually um, Castile and so forth began to push south over the subsequent three centuries or so. in in what has been called the Reconquista, but was frankly just a conquista, as they took over territory that had previously been part of Al-Andalus, those Andalusi Romance-speaking Muslim people converted back to Catholicism or or converted to Christianity. And their particular brand of Andalusian Romance merged with the Castilian of the conquerors, so that over time you have these languages blending together. So that Spanish, Castilian Spanish, was receiving these words from multiple places, from trade with with Al-Andalus, from immigrants into um, Catholic territories, and then of course from conquest as they took over these towns that were completely populated by Muslims of Hispano-Roman descent who spoke Arabic and Andalusian Romance. So it's like this really fascinating, like kind of blend, kind of mélange of of languages that resulted in the Spanish we have today, which has got four thousand words of Arabic origin.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you how many Spanish words have Arabic roots, and so there are some four thousand that are derived from Arabic.
1: You come to that number because there are about a thousand basic Arabic words, and most of them are extremely common. Um, it, some of them are place names. A lot of everyday words, you know, I'm Mexican-American and I live in um, the U.S. Southwest, which is used to be a part of Mexico, used to be part of New Spain before that. Um, And then I I live sometime, you know, part of the year in Mexico as well. And in both Mexico and the U.S. Southwest, a lot of like this common household language is deeply Arabic. And I, I suppose that's probably true as well in Spain, that a lot of these really common everyday words are ultimately der- derived from Arabic. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, these would be the the words that households would cling to even with the imposition of a less uh, Arabic, you know, dialect of Romance on yeah. them, as Castilian was.
0: And um, when we talk about Andalusi Romance, am I right in thinking that that is what we can also refer to as a, a Moz-Arabic
1: dialect? Exactly, yes. So because there were multiple, like, versions of Andalusi Romance, uh-huh. Typically, when we kind of think about them all together, we tend to say Mozarabic or Mozarabic dialects or something like that. That tends to be a nice catch all term for all of them. Uh, there, there were regional differences, right? Like the type of Andalusian romance being spoken in Cordoba was going to be different than what was being spoken in Medida or whatever. So, I mean, it, you know, there were regional differences.
0: Many people are aware of the Arabic influence of place names, but maybe less so everyday modern Spanish vocabulary. So, when we're talking about place names, place names which begin with al quite commonly, place names which begin with the guad for yeah. wadi for water, so river or place of water, and Am I right in thinking that al just simply means the?
1: Correct. Yes, it's the definite article.
0: It's the definite article in Arabic, which we have tons and tons of examples across Spain and indeed in the United States as well.
1: But, you know, place names are really just the, the surface of this deep, deep influence. And, you know, some of the things that people were really surprised by were words like loco or enchufar or tarea that don't seem at all arabic and that are definitely of arabic origin you will have noticed that i start i have started a second thread i mean my first thread which went on for i don't know 55 tweets or whatever i wanted to focus on those words that people are not as familiar with i think a lot of people have just the basic understanding that when you see a word that starts with al that it is likely of arabic origin although there are plenty of words that start with al that are not but
0: when I saw your thread, that was something that uh, I really fascinated me. I knew that there were Spanish words with Arabic origins that weren't place names, and I think the one that people always think of is um, "ohala," is is the kind of classic which does sound very Arabic. Uh, I mean, it does sound very similar to the "God willing" in in Arabic. But like you said, yeah, uh, words like "loco," "barrio," "chaleco," "tarea." I think in your first thread, "fideo," which is a noodle common vocabulary which you hear all the time i was quite blown away actually to see that they had come from arabic
1: yeah no it is really amazing it's one of the reasons that toward the end of that um, thread i began the kind of silly conceit of writing a sentence that could like occur between my wife and me (laughs) in in a conversation and that would be replete with you know arabic words and that's a kind of fun thing because I, i don't know i think it puts it in perspective how um, just as in casual, like, homely conversation in English, there are so many Anglo-Saxon words as opposed to, like, Latinate words, it's really interesting that in casual conversation in Spanish, there are so many Arabic words. It, it speaks to a, a deeper union of the two languages than perhaps a lot of modern-day Spaniards would like to admit or, or even are aware of it. I
0: totally go along with that. I was talking to some of my Spanish friends about this uh, podcast that I was going to do and about your thread and uh, native Spaniards, absolutely blown away, uh, didn't know, I think nearly any of the words that you'd listed on your thread were not aware at all that they had come from Arabic and were I was very surprised.
1: There's been some pushback from people, and, and I'm followed by like 16,000 people. So <laughs> there's all there's a variety of different points of view in my audience, and there have been some Spaniards that have pushed back and said, you know, you it feels as if you're trying to say something political, as if you're trying to say that um, that there was something like super positive about this period of Muslim rule, and that there's something you know dastardly or negative about. Um, the 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 conquest by the Catholics later on or whatever and I although, see okay yeah and though um, although you know I do have yeah, my perspectives on that and some of it being colored by the fact that I'm Mexican American and that there are you know obviously anybody who's from Mexico is going to have a particular view about the conquering nature of you know 15th and 16th century Spani- Spaniards um, but that's neither here nor ne- nor there as far as modern-day people are concerned, modern-day Spaniards, um, I don't think should take any kind of offense if I happen to say that there were positive things about, you know, Muslim rule in Al-Andalus and negative things about um, Catholic conquest of the peninsula because the reverse is also true. There were lots of negative things about, you know, um, that the 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 Islamic rule and and positive things about you know Catholic influence and so um, I, it's terribly complex and yeah. you know, very very nuanced and I what I'm trying to do simply is to popularize this very very well document, uh, documented understanding of the influence of Arabic to people who otherwise might not be aware of it and perhaps one hopes um, promotes some degree of um, some degree of, of sympathy, empathy uh, of people who are not, you know, European Catholics living in Spain or elsewhere in the Spanish speaking world. Um, you know, I, I I understand from friends who live in Spain that sometimes there are tensions, uh, you know, between, uh, you know, among immigrants and, and native populations so forth. And it's one of the things that like if you realize how deeply influenced your culture and language have been by the culture and language of the immigrants that are coming, um, perhaps it makes you a little more tolerant of them. Maybe it doesn't, I don't know.
0: I would go along with that, absolutely. It's interesting, yeah, the kind of politicization of uh, of language in that respect.
1: We all want to believe that our native language is pure, as a driven it's snow. Got, you know, you know, we have the the Real Academia Española, or however you guys say it, the Royal Academy of Spanish, with their pronouncements and their attempts at keeping the language pure. But the language has been a blend from the very beginning. That There's right. never been a moment where where Spanish was pure. I mean, Spanish itself is you know evolved from vulgar latin with the huge influence first of like uh, germanic elements from the visigoths obviously celtic elements from the the iberian peoples that live there and then huge um arabic influence and influence from now obviously from english and, and and droves and there's an influence of indigenous languages from the americas as well i mean all these things are there and it's 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 silly i think to To cling to some notion of linguistic purity when language is in constant flux and evolution, Uh, I think there's something really satisfying and freeing and illuminating about accepting those complexities and kind of reveling in them.
0: Languages are fluid. They continually evolve. The thing I would say about English, I think uh, maybe in the UK, I'm thinking of the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, They're very open to adding uh, new words. Every year, there is at least a dozen new words added deemed to have become common usage. I'm not so sure that the Spanish Royal Academy is quite as open-minded when it comes
1: to language. You know, and this is also true in France. I mean, probably more so in France, I might say. I don't know. And I think that a lot of it has to do just with the global nature of English at this moment. It's a lot easier for English speaking countries to go, "Oh, we can be descriptive about this, and we don't have to be prescriptive, whereas perhaps other countries feel that their language is somehow under assault. They see the mm-hmm. linguistic influence almost as some kind of you know political affront. And uh, I mean, I get that perspective, although it's it's foolish and short-sighted and and, and frankly, backwards looking instead of forwards looking.
0: I've noticed in the last couple of years here in Spain how cool and trendy the use of English has become in mainstream media. If you watch any TV network and you watch any adverts, the casual dropping in of English words when there is a perfectly adequate Spanish word seems to be becoming more and more common. Just going back to this comparison that you talked about with the influence in England of French versus Anglo-Saxon, and it's indeed true that in in English we find ourselves with two words for one thing. This was also true with the Arabic influence in the Iberian Peninsula as well. Does still exist today, a kind of Latin root and an Arabic root for the same thing?
1: Like cloaca versus um, alcantarilla.
0: Aceituna and oliva. Yeah. Which is quite curious. Sometimes you say you see aceite de oliva, which is kind of the same thing.
1: <laughs> exactly. I mean, when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Although we do now have, you know, aceite vegetal, aceite de, like, whatever. they all different types of aceites. The, one of the the other examples that, that I talk about is this notion that bata and the word guata, which, you know, cut cotton padding, lots of these words do have doublets and i think that um, i think that's really interesting but at the same time there are some of them that are used so much more than their i guess latinate alternatives uh-huh. that it really feels that that the latinate alternatives are you know what we would say palabras rebuscadas they're like really fancy words that we probably would not use there are just some things that it would be really hard to say otherwise it's really hard to express a lot of like culinary things without using a ton of Arabic words
0: would there have been a kind of preference for Arabic or Latin derived words with the same meaning in particular parts of the Iberian Peninsula at that time or even still today comparing maybe central northern Spain with Andalusia for example
1: yeah no I do I do think that that still holds true I mean it was certainly true at the time that um, even during the um, the Catholic conquest you you know in the south, you were going to find people who would prefer to use, like, I guess the south and, like, the east. You would see people who would prefer to use, um, you know, Arabic terms over people coming into those areas from the north into into central Spain who would prefer to use the Latinate term. So, yeah, definitely that's true. And, and uh, you know, um, it's also true when you take a look at, like, genetics. like DNA studies that have been done show that still – in Andalusia, you, you have a lot more, um, a higher percentage of uh, North African and Arabic DNA, which is still a relatively small yeah. percentage of the overall DNA. But, you know, um, most native Spaniards will have somewhere between 1% and 10% of their DNA coming from uh, the Middle East or North Africa. Um, the Berbers were the ones who really, really... Intermarried a lot more than Arabs did, and so you're, it's so a lot of that is North African, um, and and the way that DNA is kind of laid out corresponds a lot to the linguistic um, preferences and so forth and trends. But but there are, there's plenty of blending and blurring, and um, you know all throughout, we lose something when we forget our past. We lose something when we close our ears to the many different strands in the melody of our native tongue Uh, and because it it has says something about our identity and our identities are richer and more complex than um maybe the bigots in our respective societies would like them to be and uh, i think all this popularization of like cool linguistic um, things is ultimately about that about hey open your eyes and see just how rich um, language actually is the other thing that I've noticed is that Latin Americans have responded to this, right? Going, oh my gosh, it clearly had no idea, especially, you know, in countries where beyond just the existence of these words, there is very little Middle Eastern um, influence at all. I mean, Northern Mexico is different because Northern Mexico, we had a lot of um, conversos and, and other like Middle Eastern people who fleeing um, Isabel and, and Fernando's brutal mistreatment of <laughs> Of the Semitic people uh, coming to, to northern Mexico and settling, and, and in fact, the the city where my wife is from, Monterrey, um, in the state of Nuevo Leon, um, <laughs> Nuevo Leon, like the, it's just, I'm thinking about Spain and and how these terms, these place names are connected. It was um, yeah. founded by uh, Jewish conversos, and so um, you see a lot of that kind of influence in northern mexican cuisine and so forth and when you think about southern spanish cuisine in um, and andalusia and, and you think about moroccan like the moroccan influence on a lot of those areas and I, but that influence goes back you know centuries and centuries one of the things that i also do um on my, in my twitter account and, on my, and then i turn these into medium articles um is to kind of explore um things that, that people have misunderstandings about in Mexican Spanish, and so for example, the in our cuisine, um, the 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 very famous Mexican food, the tortilla, right, this this flatbread that is yeah. so sort of popular, um, is ultimately derived from um, Mozarabic cuisine, and it was that type of flatbread existed in Spain for centuries before the conquest of of the Americas, and it was brought over here, and so people in in this part of the world, have this assumption that the, the corn tortilla came first and then, um, I don't know, um, Anglo-Americans somehow... <laughs> decided to they're gonna start making it with flour right. um, and so some kind of aberration North American aberration <laughs> and I've stepped in and say no, this is this is a Mozarabic thing. this is from the Arabic influence on Spanish cuisine and so um that kind of stuff is just really, really fascinating. I think it's the case in also a lot of Latin American countries as well these certain dishes just came across during that time, and people who come from the Middle East to visit um and when they try some of these things out, they're like, oh my God like one of the, I guess, most most famous culinary um, uh, recipes in uh, northern Mexico are tacos al pastor, which is, they're basically, it's basically shawarma. <laughs> and so people <laughs> who have, the, you know, a, a flour tortilla filled with this, you know, meat that has been roasted in a, in a conical way and then kind of, you know, sliced off into the into the flatbread, people are like, this is Middle Eastern, like this is 100% Middle Eastern. And a lot of Mexicans just do not even realize it.
0: I'm glad that we've ended up talking about food. It always seems to happen in my podcast episodes, whatever the subject, we wind up talking about food. The spread of Andalusi romance making a sort of comparison maybe with uh, french and versus anglo-saxon in england would it have primarily been the language of the elite whether they whether they were uh, christians or muslims at the time uh, in the same way that french was the kind of language of the elite in in england compared with anglo-saxon
1: well actually um it would it would have been um, Andalusi arabic that would have been the language of the elite and then the Andalusi Romance was something that was the language of the common people. A better comparison is to think of Andalusi Romance as that as that Middle English, as that Anglo-Saxon that's evolving into English and as being heavily influenced by French, which in this case, I mean, is you know the, the the comparative relationship would between would be between Arabic and the Romance language. One of the I think significant differences, and that probably is the source of lesser degree to which um, Spanish has been transformed by Arabic because, I mean, French transformed also like the grammatical structure of the language in ways that Arabic did not do to to romance, um, is that Arabic is not an Indo-European language. Both Norman French and Anglo-Saxon were Indo-European languages. And so, I mean, because they had similar origins uh, and similar semantic structures and so forth, it was easier for the syntax and morphology of French as it was being spoken to influence anglo-saxon and simplify it whereas the, the same thing wasn't quite true with romance which was you know evolving from vulgar latin in the midst so vulgar latin had already done a lot of the simplification from from classical latin the the influence is really more semantic and um, lexical than it than it is morphological or, or syntactical so the structure of the language stayed intact whereas if you take a look at english as written before say the year 1000 and then you take a look at the language written 300 years later it's so different as to to be you know mutually incomprehensible whereas um the process in spain was a lot slower there isn't that marked change in the language and so over 700 years the arabic influence i mean it it, the words themselves braid themselves into the language pretty pretty intensely, pretty deeply, to, to the point that here we are 500 years later and still you know using those words. But, but it didn't transform the language in the same way.
0: When would the lexical influence of Arabic have
1: reached its peak? This is, this is tricky. So the, the linguistic influence on Andalusi romance would have reached its peak around 1100. But its influence on Castilian, which then obviously became Spanish, that continued for another couple of centuries. And so mm-hmm. as as the kingdom of Castile and the kingdom of Aragon pushed their way south, um, their languages um, in Aragonese and Castilian were influenced more and more and more by Andalusia Romance until they kind of like blended together um, and became like what we would call old or, or medieval Spanish. I see. Yeah, which at the time of, you know, Hernan Cortes' arrival in um, in the Americas and in, in Mexico was um, still it was still being transformed. You still had you know, like the pronunciation of Spanish of, of Castilian Spanish of medieval Spanish was still heavily influenced by Arabic languages, and it still retained a lot of the same sounds. And so, one of the things that people always find very interesting is that words like ajedrez or um, Mexico. These words were not pronounced in 1520 the way they're pronounced now. It was Mexico and ajedrez.
0: Really? So the kind of gluttural sound wasn't used then?
1: No, no. It was it was in the midst of evolving. And so by the end of the 16th century, by about 1580, 1590 or so, the transformation was done. And you now had uh, people saying Mexico and um, ajedrez and jabón and things like that. But before that, the, it was the sh and z sounds that were being used. Mm-hmm. So, like, all these these letters that we still have, the j's and the x's and so forth, they, they are. Which, for me,
0: reminds me more of a kind of Portuguese or… or right. Or Galician. Galician, yeah.
1: So, the way the Gallegos and the Portugueses speak, like, that pronunciation is a lot different. A lot more the way Spanish was spoken in the early 1500s than it is pronounced today. It's really amazing um, how, how it's changed. And um, there were, for example, there were two different types of S's. Yeah,
0: I was going to ask you about the ceseo and the ceceo uh, which is present. Uh, in Spain and of course in South America is more common with the Ceseo. My girlfriend's actually an Ecuadorian and uh, she uses a Ceseo and I've learned Spanish with the cefeo, and it's quite interesting. Would there been any connection there with the with any Arabic influence or I'm quite intrigued to know where that difference came from
1: Well if you think about um, just in Spain um, you know the Andalusian accent is you know compared to like typical Castilian accent you here in Madrid or whatever I mean there it was already marked. In Spain, um, at the time of the conquest, you had a lot of people from southern and eastern Spain settling in um, what's now Latin America, so that has something to do with it, but mm. but there was, like I said, there, we were in the middle of a major shift, where we now have two sounds, um, or just one in Latin America, or two in, in Spain, the s and the th sound, there were, used to be six different sounds that were, they were reduced to those two. Six? Six different sounds, it's really wow. amazing um everything from um you had you had a regular sound and then you had the the sound that's made it like with the tip of your tongue Uh the way like i i I associate it with like the madrid accent with the way people say pronounce their s's in a way that's almost with the tip of their tongue yeah uh, right above their the their top teeth which sounds to me it always makes me think of sean connery (laughs) (laughs) so that that sort of what we call apical um s that sound um those two were separate phonemes and um they converged into one uh, so that depending on what region you lived in you either went with the sean connery s or like the regular (laughs) s
0: I like that the Sean Connery S, yeah.
1: <laughs> Sean Connery S is great. Um, and then you had the sound, tss, which became over time the um, it either became an S, as it did in Latin America, or it became uh, the th- the theta sound that you have yeah. Yeah. in Spain. That, that that was originally a T S sound. A tss. So Very you know, brilliant. every place you would see a Z or um or like a C before an E and I, that was pronounced. Tss. So you it was not corazón or corazón it was corazón yeah so so it's really interesting and so like those six sounds uh simplified during this century of expansion and as a result you've got so many different dialects depending you know who settled and how that simplification kind of won out in their region people speaking very very differently um it's really interesting. And in, in English, we had something very similar. So there was this. This is a consonant shift. In Spanish, well, in English, we had the great vowel shift, which is why our the spellings of
0: are a nightmare for non-natives to learn. <laughs>
1: yeah, frankly, it, illogical, or whatever. But when you study English and you understand the way things were pronounced in Anglo-Saxon and in, in Middle English and so forth, then all of it makes sense. So you can look at a word like night and understand that at one time it was pronounced nicht. And you're like, okay, well, now I get it. And there was the vowel shift that turned the E sound to the I, uh-huh. that diphthongized it. And then there was that the dropping of that heavily aspirated sound because it went from from like a lach kind of sound to just a light huh, then to just disappearing. But the printing press was invented in the middle of all that. And it <laughs> fixed spelling while pronunciation continued on its merry way evolving as it does um leaving us with this like you say absolute nightmare
0: <laughs> <laughs> i think one of the biggest complaints of any learners of english i would say it's so illogical you know spanish is so phonetic it's basically you know written as it's pronounced any favorites any words that have come into modern spanish that you uh, discovered that you particularly surprised you or that you have a particular affection for
1: one of the ones that really surprised me was barrio just because yeah as a mexican american as a chicano um like <laughs> barrio is such a like uh, it just it feels so very mexican so very mexican american although obviously people use barrio all over latin america and in spain yeah um, it yeah. just feels very i don't know there's like almost like kind of an indigenous feel to it and to realize that it just meant you know the regions on the edges of town in, in Arabic is just like, wow. But it yes. also, it like refocuses your lens and makes you think of the enduring, almost kind of negative connotation of barrio was there from the very beginning.
0: I, I love this idea. It comes from from barri meaning wild, wild or less civilized.
1: One of the words that I recently... Um, talked about that just struck me so interesting because you know i live in the u.s and we have this very famous prison alcatraz right um just to think that um that it ultimately comes from you know alcatraz which is the gannet which comes from aljata's the diver um and how that becomes the spanish word alcatraz and then alcatraz becomes the english word albatross and then albatross is like re Borrowed into Spanish. (laughs) It's albatros.
0: It's been cannibalized.
1: It's been cannibalized. This poor word, Um, (laughs) you know.
0: It's been through the ringer.
1: (laughs) It's been through the ringer. It's recycled and recycled. Another lovely, cute one was that albondiga, and I, and I love albondigas.
0: Me too. So for the listeners who would maybe not sure, they're like uh, little meatballs.
1: Yeah, like little meatballs, right? It comes from the word for hazelnut. And um, some uh, Arabic speakers who follow me have pointed out that in modern Arabic, um, this word, um, albonduka, can now just mean like any round thing. And so... Uh, <laughs> Just a, it's like a word for like a little ball of something. And so uh, those, all those discoveries are, are just so much fun. Um, the one I posted this morning um, about oh, the word alcohol. Um, oh, I haven't had a alcohol. chance to look at that. Yeah. I was really, really surprised looking into alcohol because, it, you know, um, of course, many people will be familiar with the dark um, powder. Used in the Middle East around people's eyes, coal, right? K O H L. And that is the root word of alcohol. Um, um, in Arabic, it was alcool because that powder was made from a particular mineral, stibnite. Um, it was um, kind of distilled down into an, an antimony powder, which was used in makeup, as a tint, um, for paint. Uh, it was used in making safety matches and firearms it's like a like, kind of like a flame retardant and so the word was borrowed to mean that powder but over time in the in in spanish and then the languages that were from spanish it it came to mean the distilled essence of anything and then specifically it started to be used to mean the distilled essence of wine and so they would say the alcohol of wine by which of course they meant you know wow. ethanol cool. so now that is almost exclusively what we mean when we say, when we say alcohol, we mean the, the distilled essence of various plants, the ethanol that we derive from various <laughs> plants. So it's just a really fascinating evolution. The amusing thing is when we say spirits in English, you know, that, yeah. that's, that's what we mean. That's where that came from. It, it meant the distilled essence of something um, so that you could have spirits of all sorts of different minerals and and, and chemicals and so forth. That's
0: really interesting. Yeah, because in in the U.K. we use the word spirit, whereas in the U.S. you might use the word liquor. For strong alcohol, if we're sort of, I don't know, if we're talking about vodka or rum, they are classed as spirits. We wouldn't say liquor.
1: Yes. And in the U.S., if someone is trying to sound particularly fancy, they will call their liquor store uh, a, a, you know, a spirit shop or something like that, because we're That's aware it. of that U.K. usage. And um, they might even go further and call it ye old spirit shop or something
0: with an e on the end of the word old e old, old e
1: <laughs> exactly that's right and they'll put they'll put shop with two p's and an e at the end
0: oh god oh no that, <laughs> it just makes me think of a kind of tourist shop in in middle england
1: <laughs> it's also like the height of american cheese trust me it's like we <laughs> we we do really really love our our kitschy uh, you know faux english nonsense stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
0: For any listeners who are particularly interested in this in this theme, uh, is there anywhere they can go to find any of your research or writing about this?
1: Well, I mean, yeah. I, one of the things that I recommend is, of course, to follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm at David O. Bowles. But I also have, like, a Medium account. And people who are not familiar with Medium, it's um, a, a site where people and different news outlets write up articles that, um, can either be for free or some of them are behind a paywall, and the ones that are behind a paywall usually get like five free per month or whatever. Yeah. And so yeah. y- you can you can look at my uh, Medium account, which is where I take my Twitter threads and I've done uh, like close to a hundred now over the course of the past couple of years, and. Um, reassemble them and expand them and, and, and <laughs> weed out all the mistakes that i've made on twitter <laughs> and turn them into articles with images of yeah. like that and you've, you've probably you've noticed my kind of quirky tongue in cheek way of dealing with these things i Absolutely. i want to make this fun and accessible to people you can also find out more about just my writing in general at my website which is davidbulls.us, and i've written about 15 different different books um they are usually not particularly linguistic although a lot of them are translations um but you may find some things that that'll be of interest to you there i am actually writing a couple of books uh, on language one about the the new term latinx which comes from latino um and then another one which is the um basically a linguistic biography of the nauta language of the language of the aztec so i do that kind of stuff but most of my linguistic stuff i like to just put it out there and have it free for people to read um i feel like that is something that's super important for yeah. as i've said bringing us together and, and making us more aware of how empathetic we should be to each other given how complex our own identities are
0: i will put links to your website and to your pages that you have available and your twitter account all in the show notes of this episode david thanks so much for your time and thanks for joining the when in spain podcast it's been a, an absolute pleasure and a real real insight really interesting
1: very cool thank you hasta pronto
0: gracias So there you go, that was David Bowles. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I find this kind of thing super interesting, so I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to find out uh, more about David's work and uh, the themes that we've been talking about in this episode, then go and check him out on Twitter. He's got some really interesting threads there looking at uh, the Spanish language and on Arabic on the Spanish language and many other things as well. David's a linguist, etymologist, philologist, um, and (laughs) really interesting stuff. On Twitter, he is at David O. Bowles, B O W L E S. And he's also got his own website, which is David Bowles.us. That's David, B O W L E S.us. And you can also check out some of his articles for free on the website Medium, and that's at medium.com forward slash at David Bowles go and check him out I was just reading some of his articles on Medium I could be there all day reading them for me and I hope for you guys the listeners as well really really interesting stuff if you're interested in languages and etymology and that kind of thing so that will wrap up this week's episode just before I go just a quick mention to say that When in Spain has a presence on all the usual social media hangouts Particularly if you're new to this podcast and maybe this is the first episode or one of the first episodes that you've listened to, When in Spain has a When in Spain page on Facebook. We also have a friendly and active When in Spain Facebook group, which of course you can join for free and you can ask any questions to the group. You can share any of your content about Spain, articles, photographs, and uh, it's a good way to socialize with like minded people who are fans of Spain. If you like photography, When in Spain has an instagram account where i post various photographs uh from around spain we're also on twitter and if you'd like to get in touch with me directly with any questions about spain or any feedback or suggestions uh for the podcast you can do that by emailing me at wheninspain one the number one when in spain one at outlook.com and of course don't forget if you enjoy when in spain if you enjoyed this episode and you think it's worth a dollar or two of your money each month to keep supporting me and to keep the show going and growing head over to patreon.com sign up to become a when in spain patron anything from one dollar a month it all adds up and it all helps and it all makes a big difference and if you're not in a position to pledge any money then please consider just leaving a small review of When in Spain. And you can do that on any of the platforms where you listen to the podcast. Leave a little review. It helps other people decide whether they want to follow the show or not. And you can also do that on the Facebook page as well. Okay, so we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks for listening uh, wherever you are in the world. Uh, Really appreciate it. Love having you guys there. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. Until then, have a great week and hasta luego.